Welcome to the Well SGV podcast. We exist to multiply followers of Jesus rooted in the gospel who worship, walk, and witness to God's glory. Here's our message for the week. I'm uh, excited as we look at this passage uh, this morning, and we are going through a series on 1 John. And this series is called Walking in the Light. What does it mean to walk in the light as God himself is light, how he shows himself to us? Uh, But before we just really dive into it, I'm going to ask us to pray one more time. Uh, Let's ask the Lord to open our hearts uh, for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. So uh, please join me in a word of prayer. Father, uh, we are so grateful uh, to be able to come into your presence as we sung uh, your majesty. Uh, You are full of glory, you're holy, Uh, you're righteous, you're faithful, you're loving, you're gracious, you're merciful, you're kind. You are all of these things as we think about your glory. And you have shown your glory, especially through Jesus. Uh, We thank you, Jesus. You are the light, uh, the light of the world. And uh, our hearts, uh, may may we see you as a light. May uh, you uh, just really show yourself to us, and we need your spirit. We need your word. Uh, If we don't have your spirit and your word, how can we know who you are? So, Lord, I ask uh, that by your mercy that you would show yourself to us, uh, reveal yourself through your word, uh, do the convicting work of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but lead us to the cross. And, Lord, show us uh, that you created us to be worshipers. Uh, You created us to be obedient children. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just do your transforming work, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, every week I just do a little bit of review of what I talked about the previous week, and just to give you a little bit of context, we talked about a lot in 1 John about knowing who God is and having fellowship with God, and the reality is that 1 John, the Bible tells us that we can have a real relationship with the living God. But in order to have this relationship with the living God, we actually need to know who this God really is, not our own construction of what we want God to be, to be, but as God actually reveals himself through his word. This is, this is the God that we can have fellowship with. We talked about last week a couple things, and uh, we talked about sin, and we, we discussed the problem of sin. Sin is a universal, pervasive cancer spiritual cancer that affects every single person, and we define sin as not simply just wrongdoing, but wrong being. Uh, That is the essence of sin. It's a rejection of God, seeking independence from God. John, 1 John chapter 1, identifies this. If you look at verse 8 in your Bibles, 1 John chapter 1, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and truth is not in us. So verse 8 says, if we, if we deny the fact that we are sinners, then we are deceiving ourselves. Verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So John is saying sin is both in our being, in our nature, but it's also our behavior, being and behavior. It's both, right? But behavior stems out of being. So verse 8 and 10, uh, John is clearly just spelling this out. This is the issue, universal issue of a problem of humanity. 
And we also talked about how admitting that we're sinners who need a Savior leads to this joyful fellowship with God. Part of what it means to walk in the light, as John is talking about walking in the light, is just coming clean. It's being honest with yourself, honest with God, and saying, God, I admit that I am a sinner. God, I admit that my being, the core of my being, is infected with this cancer that wants to live for myself in my own glory. And it wants to pursue independence from you. And I want to define what's good for me, what's right for me. It's about my life, and I want to center my life on me. That's the essence. And if we can come before God and say, God, I confess, I agree with you about my sin, and I confess this before you, but I put my trust in Jesus who, uh, as my king and my savior. God, I then receive your promise that you are faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so a Christian is someone who admits that they need Jesus. They admit that they need Jesus as their savior and forgiveness of sins. They're honest with themselves and God. And they're honest about their sin. They don't seek to hide it or cover it. Um, if you cover your sin, God will not forgive. But if you confess it, then God will cover your sin. That is the promise of the Bible. Today, what I want to talk about is going into this idea of why is it that God can forgive you and I of our sins? To receive the forgiveness of sins from God through Christ, uh, inwardly, is this subjective kind of feeling, right? We hear the word of God, we hear the Christian message, the gospel, and we hear these truths, and we confess our sin, and then by faith, we receive this forgiveness, and we experience it in a real way. But I want to talk more about why is it that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And I want to talk about, about the objective reality of this forgiveness. And, I, I went, and from there, I'm going to springboard into talking about then the inward reality that God produces when we confess our sins and receive Jesus. So, first of all, the objective work of Christ that John is going to talk about is that Jesus is our advocate and propitiation. He is our advocate and propitiation, the objective work of Christ. Uh, I'm going to unpack this. But starting off in chapter 1, verse 9, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the enormous promise of the Bible. Right? This is, we're talking about the crux of the Christian message here, right? But what does it mean that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins? Faithful... What is faithfulness? When Scripture speaks of God's faithfulness, it means that God can be completely depended on to do what he says he will do. God is completely uh, dependable to deliver. And the promise that he gives to you and I through his word is God can be depended on to forgive us of our sins if we 
forgive. He is always acting in perfect consistency to what he says he will do. He can be completely counted on. This is a tremendous promise as we look to God. It's not contingent on our faithfulness, your faithfulness. It is completely dependent on God's faithfulness to us. But the verse also says he is not only faithful, but he is just to forgive us of our sins. And this is really interesting. This word just is this word dikaios, righteous. Dikaios uh, always speaks of acting in the right way. So when God forgives sinners, when God forgives you and I, the Bible says God is acting according to his righteous standards. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this, this doesn't make complete sense to me. Like faithfulness, I get that. God is, can be counted on according to his promise, according to his word. Yes, he is faithful. But to say that God is acting according to his righteous standards, he is, this is the righteous thing to do to forgive us of our sins, that does not make sense. What would make more sense, at least to me, is if John wrote, God is faithful and merciful, right? Or God is faithful and he's compassionate to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us. That makes more sense to me. But to say that God is just, he is right to do this, to forgive us, that, that doesn't quite sit. But the answer, right, the answer is found in the next few verses, and thank God for this. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, John writes, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for our, ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's two things that are really important, and this is the objective work of Christ. And this is why we can experience the subjective receiving of his forgiveness in our hearts that we, we very much uh, experience and feel. The Bible says that Jesus is both an advocate and he is a propitiation. What is an advocate? What's an advocate? An advocate is a defense attorney. An advocate is a legal proxy on your behalf. And what this means is that Jesus serves as the representative, the proxy, the attorney on your behalf before God. And whatever that Jesus has won, you win. His victory becomes your victory. It's all dependent on what he has done and the, the case that he is pleading before God on our behalf. When God sees you and I, yes, we are sinners. He sees those, the, the sins within our hearts. 
But when God looks at you, when he receives you, what he sees and what he receives you as is on the basis of Christ and his righteousness as your advocate. His righteousness becomes ours. And God not only sees forgiven sinners, but he sees righteousness in you and I through the perfect life, obedience, the death, the resurrection of Jesus that is now credited on our behalf, and Jesus is our advocate. And, he, and we can come before God and say, God, uh, I don't deserve to be in your presence, but Jesus, he's the one who purchased it for me. He is my defense. And this is what this is talking about. Propitiation is also another um, really, really just uh, essential, important truth of the Bible. This is, a, this is not a term that you hear very often in the church, right? Uh, this is like, it's, whoa, you know, it's a little abstract, it's a little heady, but this is so important. Jesus, when it says that he's a propitiation, this word halasmas, it only occurs here in 1 John 4.10, but the idea of propitiation is that he is the sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, to appease the wrath of God. Our sins are covered over, God's righteous anger is appeased, um, but Jesus doesn't simply supply an appeasement to God. He himself is the appeasement to God's righteous anger and wrath. Now, Scripture, and, uh, you know, this is something that uh, sometimes, like, you don't hear too much, uh, unfortunately, in churches, but this is all over the Bible, but scripture repeatedly speaks about God's wrath against us. His rightful judgment against our sin. It's all over the Bible. In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus spoke of the convicting work of the Spirit. And the Spirit's work is to convict us concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Right? So we, we spoke about the holiness of God. And we spoke about our guilt before this holy God. And this is the Spirit's work. Every time there's that sense of, I'm guilty, that is not just a psychological thing. This is the Spirit's work that he is working in us. Colossians 3, 5 to 6. Paul put it this way, but he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming because of these sins. So this is a, this is a dominant theme. And Jesus spoke actually more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. We sometimes think of Jesus as the nice guy, full of compassion, and God in the Old Testament, maybe he's, that's the vengeful God. That's not true. God is, his character is consistent, Old Testament, New Testament. So this is, a, this is a major topic in scripture. But understanding God's wrath and his objective anger against us from our sin is a way to understand the message of Christianity, to understand the true message of the cross, and to understand the work of Christ in appeasing God's wrath through his death. You see, you and I, we rightly deserve God's judgment. But Jesus has satisfied this completely through his work. 
And this is why experiencing the forgiveness of God in our lives is not simply just a matter of psychological, emotional, or subjective feelings. It's a matter of placing our complete trust on the objective work of Jesus on our behalf. And that's what gives us confidence before God. I want you to think about this, right? And this is something that I've used so many times in sharing the gospel with people, right? And uh, I was just speaking with someone this past week and uh, this conversation, and he came to faith in Christ, and he said, uh, you know, Pastor David, you, you shared this with me, and this made so much sense, and so I, I want to share this with you. But let's just say, I'm a really bad sinner, right? And so for me, I sin maybe 10 times a day. So think of like bad thoughts I've had, right? Evil, evil thoughts, prideful thoughts. Maybe some words that came out of my mouth, gossip, slander, you know, talking, uh, assassinating people behind their back or, you know, through my words or uh, a bad attitude, right? Or some bad action, bad behavior. So I'm a really bad person, and let's say that I have sinned 10 times a day, but you are much better than me. You only sin three times a day, right? So I am three times worse than you, right? Well, good. Okay, that's great. You're a much better person than I am, so that's great, okay? But do the math. Three times a day. And in one year, what is that? 365 times three. Some of you are really good at math. I'm, I'm a bad Asian. <laughs> I'm not as good at math, okay? That, I think, is something like 1,100. Is that right? Okay, all right, let's just... So it's 1,100. You guys are really, like, trying to work this out. Okay, just, okay, 1,100, all right? So 1,100 times you have thought something, you said something, you did something that was wrong, objectively wrong before God. And, but you insist, well, hey, but I'm a pretty decent person compared to other people. I live my life better, I think, than most people around me. 1,100 times a year. Let's say you live to 80. 80 times 1,100, what is that? <laughs> That's right. It's too much. You can't even do the math anymore, right? But that's something like 8,100 or something like that, right? 81,000 times. So you are going to come before the righteous God of the entire universe, completely holy, and you're going to tell him, God, I'm a pretty decent person. I'm better than most people that I know. I've only sinned against you 81,000 times, that's all right? Does that make sense? You know, if we look at any kind of righteous judge and they let off anybody, right, any criminal knowingly, what do we call that kind of judge? Corrupt. It's a miscarriage of justice. And for anybody to come before God and say, God, I'm a pretty decent person. I've only violated your laws 81,000 times in my life, what would you expect God to, to, to do, to say at that point? Right? Well, 
This is why uh, the only objective basis by which we come before God is through the work of Christ. Only Christ is our advocate. Only Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And only through Christ can we receive this forgiveness of sins. And this is what we're talking about. Christ's work takes care of both our need for forgiveness, but also our need for righteousness. It does both for us. And so when we come before God, this is a tremendous truth because, and I want to share a few applications of this. One is, a lot of times, we struggle with this sense of guilt, and we're not sure exactly what to do with it. Right? I don't know how many times you have said to yourself, yeah, I just can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. And the truth is, you can't. No one can forgive themselves. You need an objective and outside work, work or person to actually forgive you, to appease, to take away the shame and the guilt, right? It's like trying to give a box of chocolates after you've had a fight with your spouse. Here you go, right? Does that work? No. That only, that just, it doesn't, it just, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't actually resolve the real issue. And the guilt and the shame come from real issues of being separated from God, of going against him. And so, if Christ is not only the person who has forgiven you, but he's given you his righteousness, it could, it could be rightly said that God is faithful and just. He is right to forgive you of your sins. He is acting according to his righteous character according to what Christ has done on your behalf. But he's also faithful to forgive you every time. Maybe as a Christian, you keep failing, you keep stumbling, you keep falling. It could be lust, it could be a porn addiction, it could be jealousy, it could be anger that lashes out. You can't control yourself, you can't control your anger. Whatever it is, you keep asking God for forgiveness over and over. You think, how can God forgive me? You may picture God as this reluctant forgiver, Right? You may picture God, you know, maybe he's sitting up in his throne. He's saying, oh, you're such a sorry excuse for a Christian. I've got to keep forgiving you over and over again. You know, um, you, you keep coming to me with these issues. You may think that. But if you only see Jesus' death on you to forgive you of your sins and you don't see Jesus' righteousness on your behalf as your advocate, then your view of God will be exactly that like the reluctant forgiver. Ah, the sorry excuse of a Christian. Once again, I've got to show my mercy to this person and give them another chance. But because Jesus is your righteousness, God is faithful, but he is just to forgive you. Right? He's not just feeling sorry for you. That's not what it is. He's acting according to his just standards. So it gives you tremendous, this truth gives you a tremendous confidence to come before God. Let me give you another one. It also gives you the unique ability to handle rejection and criticism well. This is something we face on a daily basis on many different levels, right? Whether at the workplace, whether by your peers, whether by uh, your supervisor, your boss, uh, whether by... Uh, friends, or just people around you. But rejection, criticism, is an everyday issue. Most people, when they're criticized, when they're rejected, what's our natural reaction? We, like, we get very defensive. We kind of bristle. Oh, no, 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 you know. And we just sort of brush it aside, right? We don't like to get angry. 
or we don't like to get criticized, maybe we get angry, um, you know, we don't like our ideas rejected, we, maybe our sense of self-being, our self-image is being threatened in those moments, we kind of come apart. But if you understand Jesus as your advocate and you understand him as your propitiation, then the criticisms that you may face, even if it's not delivered very well, it wasn't delivered in a, in a kind, compassionate, gracious kind of way, nevertheless, it gives you the, the internal resources, the confidence, because your righteousness is in Christ, not in yourself, to be able to listen, to be able to hear. It may not be easy, but you have the ability to actually receive it and to think about it, to consider it, to think about Maybe there's some truth behind this, and maybe I need to repent. I need to actually change as a person. I need to come before God and allow God to do this transforming work. This is what this kind of truth can, can have this effect in your everyday life as well. Right? When someone points something out, you can say to yourself, you only know a fraction of my faults. Actually, my faults run much deeper than you can even see. And yet God has accepted me on the basis of Christ. He is my righteousness. And so it gives you tremendous internal resources to be able to face these everyday things of life. Right? God's forgiveness and this objective work of Christ gives us this life-transforming, what I would say, you know, humility and confidence at the same time. There's both. Right? Some people just kind of hold their heads high, and they're, it's all about them, their self-image. Right? And there's a false sense of confidence. Like, I have to be confident. I have to appear confident. I have to project confidence. That is not confidence. That's insecurity trying to project itself in that way. Right? Some people hang their heads low. Oh, yeah, I'm, everyone's just so much better. Oh, I'm just terrible or whatever. No, that's not, that's not humility either. Right? Humility is not like thinking yourself as like the, the lowest person in the world. That's not true humility. True humility just looks away from yourself onto Jesus. And so really this truth gives you both humility, genuine gospel humility and confidence at the same time. Right? But here's the second thing that John is going to get at. This objective work of Christ leads to an inward work of Christ. It makes you and I into devoted children of God. What John is going to warn in the next several verses is a misuse of God's grace. Uh, going back to what I shared earlier in a couple messages, it's God's job to forgive me, right? This is his job. It's his job to love me. And that's a misuse, a misunderstanding of the cross. How do you know if you truly understood and experienced a life-transforming work of Christ. How do you know if this is a reality? It will lead to an inward work of Christ making you into a loyal, devoted child of God. That's how you know. So John writes in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So the purpose of John's writing, hey, uh, avoid sin. Do not sin. Experience of God's forgiveness should lead us to reject a life of sin and to walk away from it. And then he says in verse 3 to 4, And by this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. How do you know that you know? This is what John is saying. This is how you can know whether the objective work of Christ is, is a reality in your heart, is a new birth. You are now, inwardly, you have a love and a, an obedience to God's word. You want to obey God's word with all your heart. This is the work that you know is real. Christ has entered in. You are a new creation, new birth. This is what John is getting at. Countering the false claim that you could call yourself a believer and yet not have this inward change that, that, that delight, that wants to obey God. So a Christian is someone who is marked by a hatred for sin before there is sin that, that uh, we loved, we even prided ourselves in it, but now you hate it, you acknowledge it as sinful, and you've experienced God's forgiveness. And now you deem God's word to be the most precious thing to you. This is the Christian. Obedience and love always go hand in hand. Verse 5, John says, Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. So look at this connection, right? But John says, whoever keeps his word, uh, keep, you know, this word tero, which means to guard carefully, right? What's the most precious thing to you? Like, what do you, what do you treasure? What do you guard carefully in your life? Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's a trust of a friend. You, you just guard that trust carefully, right? Something that they're sharing with you. It means so much. And you guard it carefully. And this is the idea that you treasure, you, you guard, you, are, uh, you, you deem God's word to be so precious, you're guarding it carefully. And John says, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. What does it mean the love of God is perfected? Right? How is it that if we keep God's word, his love is perfected? Is this talking about God's love for you? or our love for God? And I think the answer is yes. It's both. Right? It's God's love for you. It's our love for God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, Jesus said this. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, how do you know objectively whether you love God? Uh, do we seek to follow and is obediences were the pattern of our lives. Not perfection. We're not talking about sinless perfection. But we're talking about a direction. Is our life set in such a direction that obedience to his word, this is, this is my path. This is what I'm walking in. That's how Jesus says, this is how you know whether you love me. There's all kinds of motivations to obey God. If we're not centered on Jesus and his work on our behalf, there could be all kinds of bad reasons to obey God. Right? Coming to church, singing songs, maybe even dropping off a few bucks or whatever, or giving a, a, maybe a little bit of our money to the church, that doesn't please God. Right? These are external things, external acts. But what pleases God is an inward heart of obedience. But if we're doing the obedience for the wrong reason, 
that's going to mean nothing in the end. You've wasted your time and money, maybe, right? Slaves, a slave will obey God out of fear. I'm afraid. Maybe I won't go to heaven. Maybe I'm going to get on God's bad side. Maybe some curses will fall on me. You know, uh, my life won't be very blessed if I don't obey. That's a slave mentality. An employee obeys because they need to, right? You want your paycheck. You want to keep your job, right? So an employee obeys because you need to. But a child obeys because they want to. Because they want to, out of love, right? When I was younger, I admit, I obeyed out of, my parents out of fear and because I needed to, right? Uh, Both. But when Christ took hold of my life, uh, this was one area that, that God really transformed me quite a bit, is all of a sudden I had this great desire to really honor my parents. I wanted to obey them. And I wanted to honor them. And this became an inward reality that I didn't really experience as much before. And this was the work of Christ happening in my life. And this is what happens when we become children of God. Verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And walking in the light. Now, John is going to get at two things. What does it mean to walk in the light? According to verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. First, it means agreeing with God about my sin and confessing them to God. But now it means learning to walk in the way that Jesus lived and walked. That's what it means to walk in the light. To abide in him is this idea of permanence. It's this inward heart connection to know God deeply. And the more that you are in the presence of God, the more you will know his heart deeply. But it comes by being in his presence. The more time I spend with Mimi, the more I know what she likes and dislikes. She doesn't have to say it to me. I know, right? The more time you spend with a person, you know their little things, you know the little things that annoy them, the things that make them happy, you know all those details. And it's the same way with God, right? The more that we are in the presence of Jesus, we begin to know his heart more and more. And this is the idea of abiding. You know his word. And the spirit begins to speak to you in very, very unique ways as well. So you abide in his presence. As you do so, then you are learning to walk in the way that Jesus would want you to walk. There's all kinds of uh, application to this. Um, and I believe the Spirit is speaking to you about different areas of your life. There was an email that I was re- responding to uh, this past week, and uh, he is one of the uh, leaders of a Chinese um, church planting movement, uh, not only in China, but around the world. And I noticed something at the end of his email, and I thought, hmm, this is, this is really... Uh, this is really spot on to the things that we're talking about and what John is getting at. But at the end of his email, he has this quote, he says, uh, from Matthew Henry, it is not talking but walking that will lead us to heaven. He's not talking about works righteousness. But what he is talking about is that 
when you know Christ, you are on a heavenward, Godward direction for your life. Not just from your lips, but there's a way of life that reflects who God is. It's a walking towards God, towards heaven. This is what it means to know Christ. And I want to ask you, as we are preparing our hearts even to receive communion and respond to the Lord right now, what is it in your life, what is an area that God is saying, this is an area that I'm asking for your obedience? This is an area that I want you to open your hands. I want you to surrender. I want you to walk in obedience in this area. And he keeps calling you in this area of your life. What is an area that you are rejecting or an area that you're resisting the Spirit's work? But what is an area that, that the Lord is saying, this is what, what it means to walk in the light. This is what it means to keep my word. This is what it means to walk heavenward, to walk Godward. Or what is it maybe in your life that maybe you are struggling to receive forgiveness? Are you looking to yourself? Are you looking to your own, looking within you? Or are you looking to Christ? But whatever it is, what is God saying? How is he speaking through that? And I want to invite you to just take this time to pray, to respond to the Lord himself. You know how the Spirit is speaking to you. What is that area? Talk to him about it. Open your heart to him. Uh, come honestly before him. And if there are people that you want to pray with in the back, there are people in the back, as always, who would uh, be happy to pray with you. Maybe if there's someone else around you that you want to pray with, that's okay too. But uh, follow the Lord's lead and how he's speaking to you. And when you're ready, then come up and receive these elements, a reminder of Christ's death on our behalf. His, shed, his blood shed for you and I. He is the advocate. He is a propitiation for our sins. You can have confidence because of what Christ has done. He is a true anchor. And then come before him, confessing, but saying, Lord, here's my life. Uh, let me walk in the way that you walk. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We would love to hear from you and help you take one step closer to Jesus. To contact us or for more information, please go to www.thewellsgv.org.